a lot of you too is very distracting because it's so engaging. So the industry of commercially available music is designed to engage you be on the right station to play the right record at the right time. How do you get a program director to play your record? Bribery and corruption. I was a recording engineer, producer. I was a musician in a band, signed to a major label. Then I was a high-tech inventor with uh, the collaboration system. Welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Vault Hill, Arabian Business and Najahi Events. Today's guest, Will Henshaw is a songwriter, music producer, artist, and founder of the UK-based pop soul band London Beat. In 2019, Will became the CEO of Los Angeles-based men's organization Metal International, a social entrepreneurial group of heart-centered men who connect, support, and grow together. Will's most recent startup is Focus at Will.com, a science-driven instrumental music streaming service that helps people work and study, reduce distractions, and be more productive. Now with over 2 million and users. This is a fascinating guy that's been around the block a few times and understands many things about how we can concentrate better, how we can get more out of our day. And you know what? He was a musician with number one hits too. Can't be better. Let's cue the music and get stuck into this one. Vault Hill is the world's first human-centric metaverse that's opened its doors for brands and entities to launch their presence in the metaverse in only 48 hours. This is the fastest activation ever and the first time ever any metaverse has offered this. Upon this activation process, brands will receive free virtual land in Vault Hill City and can give life to their metaverse presence by buying buildings in the Vault Hill marketplace and deploy it on their dedicated VLand. Then brands can customize their land using unbounded creativity, they can display their own NFTs or upload different media, logos or digital creations to start to capitalize from their digital assets. Go check out vaulthill.io. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Will, thanks for coming to join us on the podcast today. So you've been here in LA for 40 years, you said? I, I, no, I've been in the USA for nearly 40 years and I've been in Los Angeles for, uh, I don't know, 26 years, 25 years. It's a long time to be yeah. over here. This yeah. is your home then? Oh yeah, it is, yeah. I know. Are there many Brits that you know that you've met along the way that have been here for this, this amount of time? Well, in LA, they say that you're a Los Angelino if you weren't born here and you speak with a funny accent. <laughs> <laughs> and remember that uh, a lot of Brits are in the film business, particularly in the technical aspect, the audio and the visual side of the technology in the film business, a lot of Brits behind it. So there's a huge uh, Hollywood movie-based um, UK expat community here, yeah. It's interesting, you know, typically we would think that the, the British expats live in Spain and, uh, <laughs> and places like that, but yeah. there are more British expats living here than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, yeah. And so when you think yeah. about it, I mean, I suppose what we've got Houston, you've got the oil and gas industry, yeah. you're talking about what goes yeah. on here. Well, the Brits are resourceful and an inventive. You know, I come from a long line of inventors. My dad's an inventor. My, uh, my granddad's on both sides were inventors working in... Um, in, in steam engines and sort of mechanical stuff. My dad invented um, colored glass sorting industrial equipment. I've got five patents myself. And uh, 
Wow. If, if you come from that background, which I do, I'm a creative and I'm also a, a you know, a scientist. Um, there's a place for you here. You know, people are interested in what can you do, you know. And let's let's, let's start it? off today and start thinking about something that probably got you into the, the forefront of people's minds when you were younger. So you were a, a famous musician in a famous band. Looked For a, a minute. <laughs> but you, eight number ones? Uh, well, two number one songs in the USA. Yeah. Um, and five internationally, yes. And the best known one, the band was called London Beat. Uh -huh. And the best known one is called I've Been Thinking About You. Roll tape. <laughs> uh, maybe not. I've been thinking about you, yeah. And that was, um, uh, that was an interesting hybrid band um, that I created. Um, I'm a multi-instrumentalist songwriter, and uh, I found these three singers who were, two of them were American, uh, African-American black singers, and one of them was Trinidadian. And they had a close harmony sort of um, session singer group in the UK. This was in the late 80s, and they'd sung on a lot of records. They were on Paul Young's records. They all, all of the Eric Clapton, uh, Tina Turner. Oh, name a record from the eighties. These three guys were the background singers, and we met. and And I'd got some kind of mostly finished songs, but a mostly finished song is also an unfinished song. Mm -hmm. And so when I sat with them and I said, "I got, I've got this thing," they would say, "We got the phrase that pays," and then we became a writing team and we put a band together. But it was a weird hybrid. It was like me producing and playing the instruments. And then these three singers coming in, doing the lead vocal and the backgrounds all in one go. So it was a lot of fun, but we were a British and American band, but we're all living in London. So it was always called London Beat. And it was a fun time. How did, <laughs> how did, how does a song become, you know, you make a song. I, 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 so I've I've been as far in the music industry to know how a song's made. I've been right. involved in the it going to press and it going onto vinyl. Right. Okay, I, w I was involved in a record many years ago, oh, which right. I won't bore you with. But um, I remember how we white labelled it, we shrunk wrap it, we sold it to the the, the independent record stores in uh -huh. London. So that was uh -huh. in the eighties as well. Uh -huh. So I know that bit. But how how do you go about getting a record um, or a song into the charts? Because you hadn't had that success before, and then you had success. Well, I was a backroom studio engineer producer for a few years before I was in London Beat. And I knew a lot of I knew a lot of well-known musicians and I'd worked with, you know, at the time, well-known musicians. And um, things are different now, very different now than they used to be back then. Um, you know, the influencer world and you know, there's a hundred thousand songs a day uploaded a day uploaded to Spotify. And nearly all of it is absolute junk. I mean, it's just like people's self-expression, most of it, you know. But that's today. There's still great records being made today, but it's very hard to find them in the noise. Back then, you had to sleep with a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> it was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was... Having a great hit record is like... It's like a boat. Imagine a boat that's got 40 holes in it and every single one of those holes has to be plugged so it doesn't leak. And so to have a, a hit record, like we, we, we were eventually very successful. Um, what you have to do is you have to have a great song that has been very well written, that's well produced, that's well recorded, well, sounds good for the radio. 
uh, I was got I got very interested in the obsessed even with the sonic fidelity of recording. So I've been thinking about you is still one of the most played records on now in the Goldies, old golden oldies, but everybody knows it. And that was not a coincidence. I became obsessed with how do you make a, an audio recording that sounds great on the radio? It's difficult. And I be, that's part of what happens. So you have to have a record that sounds good. Then you have to have good management. Then you have to be signed to a label who will promote you. And then you have to have really great 12-inch dance versions of it. So it's out in the clubs at the same time. And then you have to have timing. Because if you are a, you know, like we were a male R&B vocal band. And if we were released at the same time as a seal record was back then the stations are going to play a seal record because that's a male r&b kind of sound or your record so you have to be very strategic about which market and which day you drop the record and then you have to be out promoting right so you've got to be in boston if your record's being played on the chart there and you've got to be able to be on the right station to play the right record at the right time and then that requires a budget from the label to make sure that the program directors <laughs> you see how complex this yeah. are going to play it how do you get a program director to play your record bribery and corruption how else do you think so there's a budget for that let's you know, <laughs> what do you think that involves bags of white powder i don't know we People like that, I don't know, I don't care. And, and then finally, when you've done all that, you have to get the record into the charts at the right time. And then you have to be on these kinds of chat shows in the right places at the right time so that the audience see you. And then when you get to number one, if you're lucky, what happens is you, in the charts, the record charts, you never know how many records sold number one and how many records sold number two, three, and four. So some weeks, the number one record, let's say, sells a million copies, and the number two record sells 995,000, right? So it's very close. But some records, the number one sells 10 million, and number two sells, you know, 900,000. When that happens, this becomes a super hit. And that's why these hits, because then it so sells all these, so it outsells all the others so much that then it just stays there forever, which is Taylor Swift. I mean, brilliant. Oh, yeah, I saw yeah. last week. Yeah. Was it 10, 10 tracks in the top yeah. 10? Yeah. She is outselling, out-downloading, whatever it is these days, everyone, by such a large... Like, if you were to look at it on the numbers, it'd be something like, Taylor Swift, and then everyone else down here somewhere. And when that happens, it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You just stay. Blessedly, Thinking About You was one of those. It's the most played record in the world by a BMA, BMI PRS writer in 1990. Two, that's a few years ago now. And um, because it got so much airplay, it became part of people's lives. Mm -hmm. It was the, uh, it was the uh, Forces, the American Forces Song of the Year. It was the American Football Song of the Year. It was used on oh, all kinds of things. In fact, <laughs> there's a very successful um, Netflix show at the moment, Dharma, about Jeffrey Dharma, which yeah, is, uh, yeah, yeah. It's the, I think it's the second most successful English language uh, Netflix show ever. Thinking about you is in episode six in the background. Ah. So you. how do you? So how do you get paid royalties, which are paid every time it's played on television and radio? Yeah, if you listen works? carefully, you can hear this little ching sound. It's great. But I, think so, I just heard it again. So is that on every single radio station <clears throat> in the world? Do they have to pay you? Um, well, there are two types of royalties for records. Uh -huh. There's the performers and then the writers. 
Yeah. And in some territory, there's also a producer, but nearly always there's the performer and the writer. So um, different territories have a royalty structure where the performers are paid and the writers are paid. And in most of Europe, you know, if I had made a record of, say, Yesterday by the Beatles, if I'd performed that, every time it's played on the radio, I get a bit of a cha-ching. But Lennon and McCartney get the writer's bit. Uh-huh. Now, here in the States, just because of the history of the way the radio stations work, there was a deal done with the labels back in the early days of radio where the performing royalties were not paid, but the writer royalties are. And the reason why is that the station said, listen, we're promoting your product for you. We'll play it on and then you'll sell records because we're playing it. And then the writers. So here in the States, yes, uh, as a writer, one of the writers on the record, I was the main writer on the on the hits. Uh, yeah, you you do get a piece. I mean, they're tiny pieces. How, well, give me give me an example because I really want to understand it. You say tiny pieces. Is it fifty pence? Is it fifty quid? What is it? Oh, you mean per play? Yeah, uh, hmm. roughly. It depends on it. It depends on where it's played and what the territory is. Ah, uh-huh, so it's different every time. But it's probably something like in in. US dollars and cents is probably like 0.0000001 per play. Per play. In a in a regular area. Because if it's being played in, say, the Dallas area, or if it's being played in little Boise, Idaho area, there's more people, right? Of course. And then if you get played on a national thing, you know, we, we got played a lot in the UK on, you know, Radio 1, of course. That was, uh, that was pretty healthy. That came in. So how do you... As, as, a, as, a, as a band performer and whatnot, how do you collect all of that money? How do you know what's being played everywhere? Is there, is there kind of like some honesty policy? How does it work? <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's, you know, it goes back to who you know. Uh-huh. Um, there's a, in the USA, there's the BMI and ASCAP, which are the two performing right uh, distribution organizations. They're not for profit and they collect all the royalties and then proportion it out to the writers in the uk it's something called the prs the performing rights society and your song gets registered with them and then the bbc or abc or whatever the station is um every time a record gets played they have to cha-ching it they have to uh, notate it and then they then at the end of the year pay that money to the bmi but let's PRS. say you know i set a radio station up or i go and work for a radio station right. in cape town south africa right Okay. They have the similar equivalent system there. Well, what, now, but... what, what's different is terrestrial radio and then digital streaming radio have different organizations. Okay. And it's just a different royalty structure. So, But you do get paid, yes. and that's why it's so important yeah. to have a Christmas hit, then, I suppose, for these people, because <laughs> they want their song played yeah. every Christmas like yeah. crazy. Yeah, I've always wanted to write a, 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 a Christmas song that is very irreverent, all about Santa Claus doing crazy stuff. Santa Claus in jail. We don't want to talk about why. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so, let's, let's, so you're this musician and I've seen videos of you and obviously there'll be, there'll be a clip for everyone to see here yeah. what, what you look like in your <laughs> younger, more kind of uh, I had, longer I, uh, hair. And... Yeah, I, I still do have hair, luckily, but uh, I had a bowl head haircut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you go, you, you, you go from being a musician. And when did, you, when did you stop being in a band, when did that stop for you? And when did you move into other things? Well, in the early 90s, I got very interested in internet technology. I was very early. In fact, I really got onto the net in the mid 80s through my brother, Matt Henschel, who's a developer. And he was uh, instrumental in me going, 
No, he said there's this thing called the internet and there's a thing called demon internet. And he said, get a get an account on demon internet. This is in England. I was I was in London at the time. And I was like, demon internet, all that. And so um, at the time... You can't AOL, Google it, can you? No, <laughs> you, you, you can't. There's no internet. But at the time, people were online with AOL and CompuServe. And they were discrete dial-up services, a bulletin board, you know, on, on yeah, its own. Uh, but my brother said, there's this other thing coming in. It's called the internet. And it was extremely technically difficult. You had to check your email with a thing called Pine, which was a, uh, a command line interface. You had to check um, M, I think it was, to get, and it was very fast. There was no browser, there was no FTP, there was no video, there was nothing. It was just that. And um, in the early 90s, while Lunderbeat was having its hits, we had most of our big hits between 92 and 94, um, you know, one, two, three, and four, actually, something like that. And I got really interested in the way that um, early browsers, there was a, a, a browser called Mozilla, which was the very first Netscape browser. Um, and there was only, I, we downloaded it. There was only one place you could go to, which was a, a burn.ch, which was a, a Tim Berners-Lee, another British inventor, invented the HTML system. And it was a browser that looked at one website. And we were like, ah. Eh. And then, what are you going to do there? Just look at one website. Um, but very soon it became apparent there's a, something called the Fraunhofer Institute who invented the MP3. Now, the connection speed to the net was very slow, but I was like, oh, this is going to change things. Of course, you can turn a record into an MP3, and at the moment it's very slow to transfer it and technically crazy it's called FTP and there's an app and but I was like you know I think this is going to this is going to change things so by 1994 95 I was dealing with a lot of moving large tapes around because they used to be analog tapes when you recorded music and um I did the music for a a TV show, I forget what it was. And I was, uh, I was, um, this was as well as being in the band, I used to do other things, you know. And we had these tapes, and I think I was maybe in Australia or New Zealand, and I had to get the tape shipped from the UK, where my studio was in London, to where I was. And it was a nightmare. It cost a fortune. Um, they lost one of the tapes, and I was like, you can do FDP with little files you know, like just one song at a time. And a multi-track has got 48 channels of, so I, and, and it just got me thinking about, it. I bet we could do this online. So then in 1994, me and Tim Bran, who was a producer friend of mine in the UK, we met Canton Becker and Matt Moller, who were two students at Northwest University. And I was like, I think we can form a virtual band where we jam on the internet by shipping tapes, you know, uh, sounds around. And we did. And it was called Rocket Network. Originally, it was called Res Rocket Surfer, as the name of this virtual band. But it became Rocket Network. Mm -hmm. And we developed a system. Paul Allen, who was the co-founder of Microsoft, mm -hmm. booked us, uh, uh, backed us. And um, we, we, uh, we raised quite a lot of money over from 94 to 2003. And we built this thing, which is um, cloud-based audio collaboration system. That's what it is. And we sold it to Avid <laughs> in 2003. So if anybody's ever used Avid Cloud Collaboration, uh-huh, that, that's what we created. You make a lot of money? Uh, I did all right, yeah. Yeah? Did all right. Set yourself up? Yeah, set myself up. 
Okay. Yeah. But that that clearly clearly you were you were bitten by the bug and really interested well, in how technology plays a part in We moved the head office from the UK to San Francisco uh -huh. when Paul Allen said all the best developers for what you're doing from Apple, from Digizign, uh, were all based in the Bay Area. He said you need to be in the Bay Area. So in nineteen ninety six we set up an office in San Francisco and then we got funded by Climate Perkins and a few other big companies. And I was the CEO. Now, I went from knowing Jack about being a CEO because I was in a band, but I'd always had an interest in business. Mm -hmm. So I went from being in a band and then having an interest in the business to actually running my own business. We raised 50 odd million dollars. Um, I soon hired an, an experienced software CEO and I became the chairman. And um, that's how we ran the business. Now, I, instead of having, you know, a, a, a band with one pain in the butt drummer, I discovered a dev team, a group of engineers are like drummers. They're kind of they're weird people. So now I had <laughs> 30 drummers <laughs> to deal with. But because I've been used to dealing with drummers and difficult singers, I was able to go, oh, these guys are just differently abled. That's all. Differently abled. Nice. Differently abled. Yeah, they're kind of autistic and... <laughs> Everything has to be very, very specific. <laughs> so to cut a long story short, answer your question, yes. Um, I went from being in a band making music to creating technology for recording studios. And I have a, you know, a few patents around that. Me and Matt and the guys developed uh, that tech. And that kind of gave me the bug because I was in San Francisco during the first dot-com really big boom and bust. And we survived the bust and we, we sold the business. And... That just got me intrigued with and very at home with the California way of doing business. Because, you know, the music business is a murky, murky business. Mm -hmm. The music business is all about, I'm going to do you a solid. There's a deal here. My band's going to do that. And then later on, I'm going to be calling up going, Spencer, I need a favor. And you're like, I got you. Because this, it's all about that. And that goes on in, in, you know, in the West Coast business, but much less. You can go to someone and, and say, I got a deal. This is the deal. Here's the terms. Da, da, da. What do you think? And if there's a good, if there's a win and a win and then a win together, it'll happen. So there's none of that sort of jobs for the boys thing in quite the same way that there is in the music. I, in my early days in, in doing business in, in, you know, in Silicon Valley, I'd be like, what's the angle? <laughs> They're like, what do you mean? What's the angle? <laughs> it's interesting you say that, you know, I've got a friend of mine in Dubai and he, um, provides a software service, but only to clients in America. Oh. And, and he's a British guy. And I'm like, why America? He said, because in America, people will always listen. Yeah. Okay. They'll let you pitch them. Yeah. Okay. They, they won't necessarily buy. He said, but they'll, they'll listen to you if you're going to approach them for the first time. He also, said, in, in the UK, you, they won't. If you've, got an if you've got a British accent in America, you are taken more seriously. I'm generalizing, but it's true. Listen, I've been here a long time. As you can hear, I've got a mostly British accent still, right? It's to my advantage. Really? Oh, yeah. And yeah. so in business, your British accent comes across. Do they, do they think the Brits are more intelligent, more There's trustworthy, a, more honest? What yeah, do they reckon? Yeah, all of those things tends to be tends to be given to your accent. Yeah. But it, it's, you know, it, that's just a opener <laughs> as soon as people hear. Yeah. The other thing about, about it, well, you know this as an expat that if you grow up in the UK, you speak British English, and there's a lot of idiomatic terms. There's a lot of weird, funny humor. The Brits often give you a compliment by actually 
saying something that sounds like it's an insult, right? And one of the things I learned early, particularly here on the West Coast, is I I can't talk like that. So I end up you end up if you live here a long time, you end up speaking British, you uh, American English with a British accent, and a lot of the things that you would say in the UK just don't translate. There's a lot of there's a lot of words are different. Remember yeah. between uh, British English, and I presume in in um, Dubai because English is the second language for a lot of people. Um, you again, there's there's this thing called English as a second language. But it's right? interesting. Some people are learning English from American schools. Oh, yeah. Some people are learning yeah. English from English schools, and right. you can tell them very differently. Uh-huh. You know, because it's water and water <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so you can hear those those dialect changes. But I think that. When you when you see people with their second language speaking English, they tend to use a lot more words, yeah. okay, to get yeah. the sentence out than we yeah. would use. Yeah. But um, hey, I'm sure if I had to go and speak Hindi, Urdu, Arabic, or, or <laughs> yeah. one of those languages, it'd be a challenge for me too. Right. All right. So you've you, you've been this musician. You've got into tech. You've yeah. set a business up. You've sold it. You've yeah. decided to make this make this your home. Yeah. So t- tell me about some stories of you going to different parts of the world, doing different jobs and whatnot. I know you were in the, the furthest island in the world, which was fair, pretty much New Zealand for a period of time. <laughs> yeah, when I was, um, when would this have been? This was actually predating uh, London Beat. I, I spent some time as a record producer and I was signed to CBS Records as one of their house producers and um, did a lot of work all over the world making bands sound like they good on the radio, you know, and developed a bit of a knack for that. I worked with a great British band that really broke this for me called King. Do you remember mm-hmm. King, yeah. Paul King? Paul King, yeah. I did, I did one of their songs called Won't You Hold My Hand Now? I produced that and I kind of gave me credibility as a, as a producer engineer. And yeah, I was in New Zealand and um, one night I met a really beautiful girl. I was just, um, I was working with a New Zealand band called uh, Hello Sailor. Interesting name for a band. Now, in New Zealand and Australia, they were a very big band in the 80s, um, but just regional. And they'd hired me to go down there to produce their their record. And in my, like, in my last week, I met this really awesome girl uh, called Megan Douglas. And uh, she was um, the daughter of the finance minister, Roger Douglas. And um, in, in the New Zealand... Um, political world at the time, he was running the company, the country. Basically, it was being driven by fiscal policy, which all eventually, by the way, any New Zealanders listening to this will be like, yeah, Roger Nomics, it was called. And it all crashed and burned because <laughs> it didn't work well at all. <laughs> anyway, at the time, yeah, so I met Megan and I was single. And so she moved, I, I managed to entice her away. We were young, we were kids, you know, uh, back to the UK. I had a place in New York as well, but we, Closed that and went to uh, live in London. And I just, I was like, I'm going to do my own band. I don't want to, making other people's music is okay. And that's when I, you know, I, I got London Beat going. And then, yeah, and then the story goes, which is I think what our mutual friend has told you about, is that uh, one, <laughs> we, we split up and then she ended up dating Seal, <laughs> which was like, oh, Every time, and he was a mate of ours, you know, we we, we, we knew him back then uh, before he was SEAL. He, well, he was always SEAL, you know, but yeah. And at the time, at the time, my band London Meat hadn't really had any success. So I was like a wannabe and he was like, 
the rock he was a, star. He was a Dansky. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Exactly, it's a Dansky, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's fun time. <laughs> All those things you do when you're younger. Yeah. So you've been around the block. You've lived in different countries. You've been a photographer. You... Yeah, so after I... <laughs> So yeah, I've, I've had seven different things that I've done. Give me this list out, the seven different jobs you've had. Let's have a, let's have a go. Sure, I was- uh, A musician uh, in a band. No, before that, I was a, re a recording engineer producer. Okay, recording engineer I was a musician in a band, um, signed to a major label. Um, then I was a high-tech inventor with uh, the collaboration system. And then after I did that, I've always been interested in photography. I've always had a decent eye. So a friend of mine uh, in San Francisco, who's a good photographer, Maggie Hallahan, she said to me, you know, you should do this. So then I made a bonkers left turn for seven years and I was a professional photographer. The hardest thing I've ever done. I moved to LA, I was in San Francisco, moved to LA where all the, all the best photographers in the world are here. Like if you're, a t if you're a, like an op in the movie business, you, you, you graduated with honors as a photographer. Everybody here is an insane photographer. But I, I did it for seven years. And I discovered I had a bit of an angle again. It was the English thing, English rock and roll. And so uh, portrait photography is about your relationship with the subject. And so if you're like, hi, can I take your picture? You don't get a picture. You get a picture of someone looking at you like that. What? But I'd be like, all right, love, come on, stick it out. Well, there we go. Come on. What are you doing? Like that. So I became, you know, I'd just capture that. People like laughing, you know, and um, <laughs> did a lot of rock and roll wedding photography. <laughs> it was very well paid. And I'd show up as the wedding photographer. Rock and roll wedding photographer. Yeah, yeah. And okay, it, so you did that. What else have you done? Well, that taught me a lot about running a small business. Okay. Because I had no one funding me. I was just me every day making it happen. Um, after that, I started the next thing I did. That was an agency. Um, I After that, I did something called Focus at Will. I got back into high tech and music. And Focus well, at Will is still about running. That, I think this, this is yeah. quite interesting, yeah. Focus at Will. T focus at Will. How, how, sorry, not Focus on Will. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Focus at will. How long ago did you set that up? Uh, 2010, I started okay, so it's it. 12 years old. You've set yeah. this business up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 now, I, now, let's for the benefit of everyone that's watching mm. and listening, explain how it works, because I'm really fascinated by this. Right. So Focus at will, focusatwill.com, is a music service that has a unique uh, library of material, which is specifically designed to put on in the background when you're working. A lot of people listen to music when they are yeah. working. One third of the general population can't listen to anything when they're working. Mm -hmm. One third of the general population sometimes listen to music or something in the background when they're working. And one third of the general population worldwide like to listen to music when you're working. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If you're in the third of people who likes to listen to music, what do you listen to? Because most music like, I've been thinking about you, right? It's designed to engage you. It's designed to have you listen to it. So if I'm working away, writing a you know report or something, and I've been thinking about you, you'll come on the radio, you'll be like, dear sir, I wish to complain that I've been thinking about you. You'll be, you'll be, <laughs> right? We did, when I started the business, I did some research to find out if, what is the most effective music for listening to that is not distracting? And so, the uh, scientist that I hired to work with us, uh, Dr. Julie Mossbridge is her name, she said, you should 
do the opposite first. Find the most engaging songs. So first of all, do a research project and find music that people can't work to. So what are those songs? And at the time, it was really interesting. We found there were two songs that almost no one can ignore when they're working. One of them is The Beatles, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Oh, really? Uh -huh. It's almost impossible while that is on, because you put a, you know, you put a, a, a brainwave machine on so you can watch what people's brains are doing. You put that on and it just goes, <coughs> she loves you, yeah, yeah. You just, just turn it down. The other one was Snoop. Drop it like it's hard. <laughs> Snoop. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and if that's on, you're like, dear sir, I wish to complain about the Snoop. Oh, oh really? Yeah. There was others too. U2, a lot of U2 is very distracting because it's so engaging. So the industry of, you know, commercially available music is designed to engage you. Dance music, designed to make you dance. Um, choral music, designed to make you feel wonderful. You know, religious music to make you, right? And so having now found out what is the most engaging, I then sort of unpacked that to figure out what is... What music does support you? And the aha moment came when um, we, we found that different people's brain types mean that different types of music work for different people. Okay. So when you go to Focus at Will, there's a quiz, an onboarder that wants to know, that finds out what kind of brain type are you? Are you, you know, how ADD are you? Um, are you better in the morning? Are you better in the evening? What kind of music do you think you like? And then... Uh, there's a sort of a continuum of different types of music. It's always instrumental. There's no vocals. Because if there's a vocal, even in another language, your mind, your, your, your hearing will pick it up. And that's to do with the fight or flight response and to do with the fact that we respond to the sound of a human voice always because it might be, you know, sex, food or danger. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a, that's what we're looking for in our brain. So we discovered that some people need just drums. So on the folks that will system, there's about five or six channels of just drums. Some people need very calm, gentle, ambient music, like being in a spa. Some people need sort of dance music, dance floor music. But if you look at house music, there's a lot of vocals in it. There's a lot of things that sound like vocals. You know, sounds that go, these are all human sounds. So we found you can, people work well with house music or dance music as long as there's no human sounds or things that sound like human sounds because they're distracting. But there's something about the pulse that helps you work. And then more intense music and more intense music. The core user base in Focus at Will are people who are ADHD. We know about ADD. ADHD and ADD are the same thing, right? And... If you've got any friends who've got ADHD, which is like all the fun people, by the way, <laughs> most of us, you, 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 you seem to be fitting this criteria. Um, <laughs> people who are ADD just means that you're easily distracted. You yeah. like to do more than one thing at a time. Yeah. Right. And we found that the, it, intuitively, I'd be like, Spence, dude, you're driving me crazy. Settle the F down and listen to this nice calming music, right? Da, 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 da. No, eh, that won't work at all. Uh -huh. If you're really ADD, if you're really like super hyper, um, what works well is bonkers music. 
really loud electronic. Yeah, yeah, always. The more insane it is, the more it calms you down. So it is completely counterintuitive that if you're like over here on the ADHD, all the fun people, like, as I say, most of my friends and yeah. uh, we'll talk about the men's group we're in in a minute. Most of those guys are over here. The music that will work best for us is very intense. And it's similar to the way that um, pharmaceuticals, in particular, uh, people know that if you have ADD, you can take Adderall or uh, Vyvanse or these other, um, it's actually methamphetamine, that speed, and it calms you down. What's up with that, right? Yeah. Would you think if you've got a kid going nuts around the thing, uh, around the school, that you'd give him methamphetamine to calm him down? And it overclocks the brain. And it's to do with, I won't go into it now, but it's to do with the way that your non-conscious mind is looking for um, danger and looking for things to do all the time. And there's two parts of your brain. There's me talking to you now and then my non-conscious mind over here. And when you take methamphetamine, <laughs> not street methamphetamine, and now talking about as a pharmaceutical, what it does, that energy calms down that part of the brain so I can concentrate on what you're saying. We found you can do the same thing with music without requiring How long have you had this business going? 12 years. And how many subscribers do you We've have? We've got 2 million. 2 yeah. million people paying subscribers? <clears throat> oh, I wish they were all paying. Okay. But yeah, we, enough of them pay that it makes it valid, yes. So you're two million yeah. subscribers. I think about myself and it's like, when I was younger, yeah. the first place it took me to was a building site with the radio on in the background right. where the bricklayers were laying bricks right. and kind of like doing manual labor. And then every now and then a song would come on that they all knew and, you know, so yeah. or one of the older guys would go, yeah. oh, this is a great one. And he'd yeah, yeah. it, it, sing the chorus as he was right. laying bricks. Right. And then it then it took me to to exercise and yep. it's like you know, whether it's podcast or whether it's music when people exercise uh -huh. to be able to concentrate and it's like if you if you said to me go and sweep out your dad's garage right all right i'd need some music on in the background uh -huh. to do it okay uh -huh. if i had to do it in silence it would oh, be yeah. purgatory oh yeah <laughs> however if i had to write a report music in the background would drive me nuts yeah because I have to concentrate on writing the report. Right. So is there two different types of work, essentially? It's kind of That's like right. manual labor right. and mental labor, yeah? Yeah, you, you just called it. Um, in the 30s, there was a company called Muzak that created what we know as Muzak, which is music you hear at the dentist when we were kids growing up. And the idea there was that they would pipe music into factories during the war effort, actually, that would make the workers more efficient. And they tested it and they found that by playing these tunes while people were working, you know, building aircraft for the war factory, um, it was more effective. So you're dead right. It's to do with, the difference is to do with what your cognitive, your cognitive function is while you're doing the thing. So if you're bricklaying or you're doing manual labor, yes, you can listen to music that has lyrics in it music that has strong emotion. In fact, that works great. If you're working out, you want music that's like, you've got a beat and can have uplifting, you know, uh, uplifting songs. But if the part of your brain, the cognitive job you're doing, uses your spoken word, even if it's not being spoken. So if, particularly if I'm writing, dear Spencer, da, 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 right? I'm using my, my, my cognitive function of actual communication. If I'm looking at a spreadsheet, same thing. 
because I might be, in my head, I'm going two times seven times four, right? So that is the difference. When you're learning something, you're doing the same thing. When you're studying something, you're reading information. And so we found that when you're doing something that requires that cognitive function, the music that has to support you is more about keeping you on a pulse. It's like, you know, you're in a, you're on an old slave ship and you're pulling the oars like this and there's someone at the back going, pull! And what happens is the music is doing that for you when you're working. Okay. So then if that's the case, why do I need to put the car, why do I need to turn the music off when I put the car in reverse? Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? So whenever I yeah. stop and put it in reverse, I have to yeah. turn it down. It's because your non-conscious mind is looking out for your safety. And if the music's on and there's a kid behind the car, you will not hear it. If there's somebody coming, you won't hear it. And what happens is your brain has this function where you're like, Shh, that might be a tiger. Shh. Somebody at the cave door. It's that. Interesting. Now, my wife, whenever she gets in the car, always turns the radio off. It drives me crazy. She turns it off? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, my wife and I, my, well, there's, what, there's a six-year age gap between us. And right. whenever she gets in my car, she turns the channel over and I'm like, leave it. Yeah. Yeah, my wife, I discover sometimes I get in the car, oh, it's her car, and she's into old-school hip-hop. Would you believe it? That's interesting. <laughs> knows all the words. Well, like salt and pepper and stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> knows all the words. <laughs> she got big butts. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go on to the last thing I want to talk to you about today, which is metal. I joined a networking group in yeah. uh, a year ago now because my membership's just been renewed after being oh. convinced by our mutual friend to join. Yeah, good. Um, media, entertainment, technology, arts and leaders. This is the seventh thing I've done. <laughs> <laughs> How did you start that? Why did you start that? I didn't and, and... start it. Okay. Um, so there is a men's group and it's metal.men. That's the website. And Ken Rakowski, who's my partner in this, this is what I'm doing these days. I still have um, Focus at Will. It's still an active business, but I have a team running that. And so uh, I'm Ken's partner in running, in running Metal. So Ken Rakowski started uh, the Metal Men's Group in 2006, I think, in, um, here in Los Angeles. And initially, it was a group, a group of guys who would get together for breakfast once a week. And... Ken is a very unique guy. He has three, three areas of absolute genius. He's extraordinary at introducing people to each other. He introduced me to you in a roundabout way, right? Yeah. Um, he is an extraordinary host. So he's a very gifted interviewer doing what you're doing now. And he's got this unerring sense of the future so he was the first guy that told me about Bitcoin in 2013, maybe, if I'd listened to him. <laughs> Some of the guys did. And so the Metal Organization is a group that's grown over the years. I became a member in 2009 or 10, and uh, it's a men's group. Why is it a men's group? Well, we're a group of entrepreneurial thinking men, and we collectively want to make the world a better place. And we have found by being part of a brotherhood, which is apolitical, which doesn't have any kind of non-denominational, there's no religion talked about. And we're men from all over the world. And by being around other good men, it brings your game up. 
if I had a problem with something, I could come to you or any of the other guys and go, hey, have you had a problem with this? And so there's a culture within the group. We have this golden rule. We do not talk politics. We don't talk religion. And in these days of hyper-partisanship everywhere in the world, it's a real joy. You just don't know where someone, because they're just opinions. And so we're a men's group because it makes us better men in the rest of the world. We're not like, we're a men's group because, you know, fuck everybody else. We, that's not us. That's not what we do. As a group of guys, we support women in business. We're, we're part of a, we support a thing called Witty, which is a women's institute for business. We support youth um, in, in entrepreneurial things. We run something called, we're part of a uh, supporter leap. We are uh, very involved in men's mental health in particular, well-being, but in particular men's uh, physical, mental health, particularly to do with suicide and depression. It's a, it's a unspoken, crazy uh, uh, amount of uh, guys suffer from that. Mm. And then we help minorities as, as a group. We'll lean in the help. LGBT, LGBTQ will we'll help. We're, we're men, that's what we are. We're men, that's what we are, you know. And so if you identify as a man, you are welcome to be part of what we do. I've met a number of people from the group and been blown away by the caliber yeah. of some of the people within within that group we had on some a, of on the a... men in the group sorry the you don't like me saying people do no, you I, it's just that you it's... keep pu pulling me up on that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah isn't it funny uh, it's funny right yeah anyway it's a brotherhood, we, anyway yeah. whatever men <laughs> <laughs> I, we had um sasha strauss on the oh yeah podcast genius. a couple of days ago genius what a genius yeah. I mean, to sit and spend time listening to him and be schooled by him right. was just incredible. Yeah. Why anybody would not want to pay top dollar to get yeah. him and come and help them with their business strategy. And um, they do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, of course they do. Sure they do. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, who else? And also uh, another man that we met who was wonderful to us yesterday by taking us out to an aircraft hangar to show oh, us his flying car. Deja Molnar. Yeah, and let <laughs> us drive his flying car, which was Genius. just, or oh, he let me have a go in it, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, to be around a man that's, you know, that's that excited and enthusiastic yeah. About what he's trying to do, as much as I'm sure there'll be people out there thinking he's mad as a box of frogs, it's, it, it's the genius <laughs> mad in as that a box of frogs. <laughs> now, I'm just thinking if I was to stand up on stage here in LA in front of a theater, he's as mad as a box of frogs. You'd have a lot of people going, "Is that a good thing? Is that is that a bad thing?" <laughs> he, what was the other one people said? It's, it's about as useful as being handcuffed to a ghost. <laughs> Bonkers as a badger's armpit, mate. <laughs> So how many members does Metal have? <clears throat> We're at 800 at the moment. So 800 members, yeah. it doesn't cost much to be a member. Right. And those. And how often do, does Metal get together? So if, if, if somebody was to become a member, what, what do they get from being a member? Well, you... If some man was to be a member, <laughs> what do they get from being a member? We do do open to all events that are called Metal X events. So we do hikes, regional hikes, and we do other get-togethers or two that the whole public are invited to. So to be a metal man, you, there's a vetting process. We need to make sure that you are who you say you are. So one of the reasons why it's such a strong community is if someone, if a guy comes in, there's a vetting process, there's background check, there's re references, a few other things go on. Um, and if someone is, says they're a physician and they drained in Harvard, we're going to check that. Is that, is that true? Um, 
it works like this. It's an online organization. We do a Zoom call, which is very carefully structured on a Saturday morning that starts at 7 o'clock Pacific, 7 a.m. Pacific. And then we have really fine-tuned the art of uh, com uh, community online. So by using breakout rooms and using the length of time, the number of guys that are in the breakout room, by using a randomizing feature so guys are thrown together, it's a little bit like being in a room of 800 guys and now you're just going to meet six guys for six minutes. Yeah. And then another six guys for six minutes. And then Ken runs the main show, which is a two-hour chat show. It's just like this. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> we have four guests on a Saturday morning and they range from being very, very well known to Sasha, who's talked to us uh, a number of times. And um, it's Ken's genius. He is a next level interviewer. And then um, we have um, we have other, uh, Ken does, one of the most exciting things is every week Ken does this presentation, Ken's brain. Mm -hmm. And he finds stuff that you're like, I could sit and Google something forever. And then Ken would come up with 10 links that are just like, and it's because he's got this huge network of people who send him stuff, right? He's amazing at it. Um, and then during the week, there are nearly 50 member sessions, which is guys like yourself who run much smaller groups. And they're expert. These are, these are experts. This is how you'll meet the guys. For instance, um, the leading real estate agent here in California, uh, Nathaniel Pitts, uh, Getzels is his name. He runs a very popular series. And if you're interested in real estate, flipping real estate, no, 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 the skinny on that. Um, William Quigley, who's uh, from Clear uh, Capital, who's a very uh, well-known VC here. He runs the Quigley Hour, which is, you can get time with him, which is astonishing. Um, Nolan Bushnell, he's another metal man. You probably met him. He's a very eccentric gentleman. He's, he's brilliant. He invented the video game. Literally, he invented the video game. He was Atari, wasn't he? He, he started Atari. Yeah. He hired Steve Jobs for his first, <laughs> his first job. And you get to meet Nolan. I mean, that's fantastic. There's a bunch of musicians. Um, yeah, I've had a music career, but I'm by no means the most notable. Kenny Aronoff, who is the rock drummer of Rock Drummers, A-R-A-N-O-F-F. -F. He's fantastic. Um, he's a regular member. You'll see him. He quite often joins from the... not. He's in a league now where it's not the tour bus. It's the private tour jet. And he, he often comes in from the tour jet. <laughs> Just did a gig with somebody. So you've got people in there that, that are running groups. You say 50 groups a week. Yes. So, so you've got men's mental health. You've got raising capital for your business. You've yep. got, you know, dealing with various challenges that we deal with in life and yeah. whatever that may yeah, be. Um, so it's commercial, it's personal, it's relationships. Mm -hmm. And and what I like about it is it's very, it's very respectful, but it's also very confidential. Yes. It's like we don't yes. talk about each other's problems like that. If people want to right. open up in a room and tell their story, tell their problem, their challenge and whatnot, I, so it's really respected, isn't it? One of the the sort of the heartbeat of the community is a um, we do three events a week called the Foundry. Yeah. And I the Foundry that. is something that I actually developed, um, having had an interest in personal development uh, uh, in men's work over you know many many years 30 years now and the foundry is a unique event that we run um I'll, I'll i'll talk about it for a minute it's usually if you're involved in any kind of personal development work let's say there's 12 guys sitting around in a room usually what happens is everybody introduce themselves 
And then the guy that has the most, um, the worst problem, you put the group energy on, right? And so what happens in the foundry is there's a timed grid system, which has been fine-tuned over, you know, many, many years now. And it's a system that works really well for you in a, in a confidential space to share and be witnessed by your brothers. And it's not always about getting a solution. Often it's just being able to talk about this thing that's happening to you. And uh, we do three of these a week. It's the backbone, the heartbeat of what we do in, in uh, metal. Yeah. A man that's had such an interesting career doing so many different things. <laughs> and his fifth marriage, he's got whippets now. <laughs> it, I do. I, I, I have whippets. They're English race dogs in case anybody's interested. Just last question then before, before we finish. What's your, what's your favorite thing to do? What do you enjoy doing most? I tinker with classic cars. Okay. What um, type of classic cars? At the moment, I'm a little obsessed with 1950s Jeeps. Okay. Willys Jeeps. Willys, yeah, that's right. I, I started with my dad's Morris Minor when I was a kid, and I find it really helps me um, to just not think about the music business or technology or business i go out and uh, you know classic cars always have something needs to be done to them so the uk equivalent to that would be an ex-army lightweight land rover yeah yeah, yeah? absolutely my yeah. dad has three in his garage yeah, yeah I, got, I, got, I got two jeeps right now and i'm trying to talk the wife into me getting another one <laughs> <laughs> and that's good for your mind yeah 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 and it also gives me a connection with people usually guys who are not from my walk of life at all they're like guys who are mechanics, guys who are interested in. And um, within the States, obviously, there's this very hyper-partisan uh, social environment. But if you're into four-wheeling and if you're into Jeeps, you're into vintage Jeeps and you know what you're talking about, it doesn't matter what you think, what you believe, it doesn't matter where you come from. So through the Jeep community, the off-road community, I know guys all over the nation. So, you know, we're all part of a Facebook group. My Facebook, here's the secret with Facebook. Only get rid of everybody apart from the things you're interested in. I just go, no, 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 no. I have my family, but not much. I ignore that most of the time. Jeeps and whippets. That's all I look at. So my Facebook feed is great. It's really interesting. <laughs> Imagine if I scroll through the Jeeps and whippets. Yeah, that's it. Jeeps and whippets. Mostly Jeeps. <laughs> Things that matter in later yeah, life. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to take this time oh, to talk to us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank it's, you. It's for... a real joy learning about your story. And it's, uh, I love that you've done so many different things. So how do people, if they want to get involved in metal, how do people get involved? They go to metal.men. That's it. And just just apply and yeah, go through the a, process. Get a get a guest pass uh, for the next uh, Saturday. Ah, uh, that's an interesting thing. So yeah. they get guest pass. They can yeah. come and be part of it for free for a few weeks. Three weeks, yeah. Three weeks, okay, to see yeah. if they like it and see if we like them. Yep. Okay, that's it's it. worth yeah. doing. Will Henshaw, thanks so much for your time, man. <laughs> Lovely to see you. You too. Nice to see you. Too.